Hello, this podcast is brought to you by Airs on Air, global mobility inspired thinking. This episode is the third in a series on the topic of immigration as it relates to global mobility. Our host today is Diana McKeaton, Airs Immigration Team Lead. Our guest today is Patricia Lameko, Senior Associate Attorney for Graham Adair, an Airs preferred U.S. immigration partner. I'm Sheila McKell. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Airs on Air. Hi, Patty. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about the H-1B lottery season that is just right around the corner. Uh, I remember that uh, my very first internship uh, right when I started college was actually at a law firm, um, and it was H-1B cap season. It was the third week in March, and I remember it was just hectic, to say the least. I asked the attorney at one point, you know, how many hours are you working around this season? He was like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> um, my family on Sunday night or something like that. And I was like, oh, yikes. Uh, so I know that with the new USCIS guidelines and process, um, it looks a lot different um, last year and this year. So if you could just walk us through what the new H-1B registration process looks like, um, and hopefully you're also enjoying some of the relief, although I know it's still probably a, a busy season for you as well. Hi, Diana. It's a pleasure to speak. The cap season does look very different now than it did, you know, three plus years ago. And it did bring a little bit of relief. It's still quite busy, but it, it gives us a little more time to get everything done and squared away. Uh, so the difference with the cap now is that it opens on March 1st and it's running until March 18th. And that is solely for registration purposes, which means that the company places their applicant on the registration, on the website, and that includes their name, their date of birth, their passport information, and whether this would be a bachelor's based H-1B or US master's or higher based H-1B, what they would qualify for. Then all of the applicants are included in the lottery which is conducted sometime after the 18th. We don't have a specific date right now, but we have been advised that as of the 31st of March, applicants will be notified if they are selected in the lottery. Then as of April, again, not a specific date yet, but we should hear it soon. Um, usually within the first week of April, they will open the window to accept applications and that is open for 90 days. So anyone selected, they would then proceed to file the actual application with USCIS. An adjudication will run anywhere from four to six months. Um, once approved, as of October 1st, you can either change status into H-1B or then be able to go get a visa stamp abroad and enter on H-1B, depending on your particular needs. Great. Thank you so much for the rundown on that. Uh, I know that one of the common misconceptions or I, I, someone maybe that is a little bit new to immigration always asks if we can uh, include someone in the lottery and they always assume the start date is, you know, as soon as it's approved. <laughs> so we always have to throw out the caveat, you know, no, no, it's actually October 1st or even possibly later, you know, if there's an RFE or if they are selected in like the second lottery. Um, and speaking about the second lottery, can you just talk a little bit about that? Uh, I know it 
came as a little bit of a surprise to everyone when there was a second lottery and then even a third lottery last year. (laughs) So part of the new structure with the lottery was that it was meant to make it quickly available, you know, when there are and are not numbers available. And so the first year this new lottery system was in place, they actually had a second lottery occur, I believe in August, early September, something of that nature, um, because there was numbers available. So either cases weren't filed or whatever happened, there were numbers available. So it was great. We were able to get additional people into the H-1B. The company does not have to do anything in advance of this. It's just whoever was included in the March lottery and not selected is automatically re-included in any subsequent lotteries. So last year, there was actually a third lottery, as Diana mentioned, and that occurred in about end of October, early November. Um, And again, there was nothing required on the company's part or the employee's part. It's an automatic inclusion of everyone that was submitted between the the dates um, of the registration in early March. And so this year we expect there will likely be a second lottery as there were in the last two years. It's not something that's guaranteed, of course, but there's always that opportunity, which is great that there's no additional legwork on anyone's part. It's automatic. And that's kind of the nice part about this new system that they have in place. Yes, definitely. I know I definitely saw some employees who were very happy when that second or third lottery came through and they did get selected. Um, do you off the top of your head by chance know what the approval um, or the selection rates tend to be? Are they pretty similar to before the new process was enacted? They are pretty close to it. I think it's running somewhere in the 33 to 36 range, um, which is pretty similar to what it was in previous years as well. Because The numbers remain the same and the numbers we're seeing applying still remain the similar range. So that in itself hasn't really changed. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about what the high level um, kind of uh, important H-1B requirements are to keep in mind? So when companies are thinking about, um, you know, candidates they want to enter, I know a lot of information isn't required um, for the registration process, but if you could just kind of bullet point those, the most important requirements for us, I think that would be helpful. Of course. As you said, a lot of information is not needed for registration. What we're looking at is the passport date of birth. It's more biographical than anything else, but we are confirming whether that individual has a U.S. master's degree or not, because that determines part of what numbers are available to them. So one of the things we do require our applicants to have for us is a copy of the actual degree for a U.S.-based master's. Um, If they still have not received it and the school can't issue something that explains why or when they will, we're not going to put them as a U.S.-based master's. We're going to put it as a U.S. bachelor's to avoid any potential issue down the line because if they're selected as a master's cap and then cannot provide documentation that they have a master's or higher from a U.S.-based institution, they can't file that, that cap case. So to avoid that, if we cannot see the degree prior to registration, we will mark it as a bachelor's degree uh, cap case. In addition to that, we normally ask clients to provide us with a job description and a prevailing wage so that we can determine that the individual has the correct field of study, as well as that the role itself is an H-1B 
specialty occupation, and that the company's wages are in line with Department of Labor's prevailing wages. None of that is submitted to immigration at the registration stage, but we want to make sure that whoever we're registering, actually the role and the individual qualify for an H-1B so that if they're selected, the company can use that H-1B. It's not lost to them or to someone else um, if something you know doesn't match up, if a role doesn't fit or if a wage isn't in line. So we do have all of that looked over from a, the beginning of the registration process on our end. I know our clients really appreciate that because you don't want to come across those red flags after you've already entered them or maybe the employee has gotten their hopes up and we find out that, you know, the prevailing wage is really off or something like that. So um, we definitely always recommend kind of reviewing all of those. And I'm glad that that's just standard practice at your firm as well. We want to make sure that when an individual gets that great news that they were selected in the cap that we've already confirmed from the company side as well as from the individual that the role qualifies and that the individual has the correct background and that they can proceed. We don't want to, at that point in time, have to give them the unfortunate news that, you know, yeah, you got selected, but uh, sorry, this role won't work. So we do want to make sure we cover those bases in advance so that everyone is set up for success. Exactly. Yeah. And that due diligence definitely pays off. Um, do you, so I know when the new registration process started, we kind of saw a few options float out there. You know, some companies um, were electing to do uh, registration only with their immigration law firms. Some were choosing to do registration with some LCA preparation, and some others were just choosing, you know, let's keep the process the exact same. I know it's just registration, but let's prepare the entire petition, you know, have everything ready. So if they do get selected, we can just um, you know, have all the documents ready for filing. Obviously, this comes with different cost tiers. Um, but that that more, I, I feel in my experience, I was seeing some of these um, other options that had um, work in addition to just registration because of the uncertainty of the first year. So I was hoping you could maybe um, tell us a little bit about your experience, what you're seeing companies do now since we're in the second year of the process. Sure. So yeah, the first year, most of our clients actually did do the full prep, um, you know, in case, because I think there was some caveat in the language of the registration that if it doesn't work out, we're going to switch right back to the previous system. So to make sure that, you know, everything was ready to go, if that happened, um, we had all cases prepared in advance, LCAs, forms signed, everything ready to go. Um, the system worked out great. And so that wasn't a necessity. Uh, and then the following year, what we did was, um, as I said, we did an assessment ahead of time. So we already have an idea of the SOC code we'd be using um, and what the, the timeline would be on that front. Um, but we did not prepare the LCA or the forms or the letter support. We had that waiting um, till the case was selected. Right now, that is our current plan for most of our corporate clients. We will not be preparing anything in advance except for individuals who are going to need the cap gap and their um, EAD is expiring in early April. So in order to make sure that we can file as soon as that window opens, we are preparing those cases in advance, including the LCA, the I-129 and the L letter of support. So that as soon as USCIS begins accepting H-1B cap cases, we will submit that to cover them with the cap gap and allow them to continue working until October. Otherwise, if their EAD is expiring 
early May or June, then we'll begin preparation once we know they're selected. But for the individuals where their EAD is expiring in that, I would say, first two weeks of April, we are really suggesting that those cases be prepped in advance. I'm really glad you brought up the cap gap because I, I know that I see a lot of F1 students being sponsored for the lottery as the company's thinking about, you know, how could, how can we keep them on more permanently? So I'm really glad that you brought that up. That up. I know um, a lot of people are running out of time. And so the H1B can be a, a really good option if they do get selected. And, and you know, piggybacking on that, um, it, you know, when companies are looking at and planning for the year, trying to strategize who they should be including in the lottery for the, the year ahead, um, you know, what should they be looking out for? Who do you recommend that companies include in the lottery? So we do recommend that individuals in F1 OPT uh, be included, even if they have that two-year STEM OPT available to them you know, coming up, we still recommend you try at the beginning because as we've been discussing, this is a lottery. There's a 35% chance, let's say, you'll be selected. So while an F1 has some tax exemptions, which are useful for an individual, balancing that against the fact that there's a 35% chance of selection, it makes the most sense to start trying from that first year they're an employee of the company and the company wishes to sponsor them rather than waiting until their last year of STEM OPT and then sponsoring them um, wherein they might not get selected and then that's the end of their work authorization. This way you're buying yourself an extra two years of chances. And so that's always our recommendation to clients that if you have an F1 OPT, even if they have that additional time on their work authorization, that a cap case, uh, excuse me, a cap registration be filed for them to try and get that cap number sooner rather than later. Same with an F1 CPT. Um, you know, if they can, excuse me, if they can secure an H1B registration and get chosen, then they can determine, you know, if it needs to be filed consular so they can finish their master's program or whatever it is, at least the number has been secured and that cap H-1B is available to them in the future. Um, so that's our recommendation with F-1s, that as soon as they are eligible from a company perspective, that they be included in the lottery. Um, other individuals that we recommend seeking the lottery for are those that are in single intent visas. If the company wishes to sponsor them for a green card down the line, just because it does make it easier at certain stages in terms of travel and continued work authorization. So those would be visas like a TN or an O1 or an E3 that are single intent visas. Um, it's not a necessity for the company to do so in order to sponsor the green card, but it just does give them a, the employee a little more leeway with travel needs and work authorization. So that's something that we do recommend and that a lot of our clients do keep in mind and, and many of them do pursue CAP for them. Uh, and then the last one would be an individual in L1B. Um, if the company has not yet started their green card and they're nearing the end of their five years, it would be best to try to get them into H1B cap to buy yourselves an additional year uh, since the H1B is valid for up to six years versus the L1 at five years. 
Um, so depending on where they are in the green card process, it may be a necessity to try and get that taken care of to give them that extra year of time to finish the green card process. Yeah, thank you. And I know that for some folks who are um, in line for the green card process, maybe their company has a policy where they don't start until a year after employment or maybe two years after they've been employed. Um, those individuals who might be from countries or born in countries like India or China who have um you know, their priority dates are pretty backlogged, so they have to wait quite a long time for a green card. Can you just talk a little bit ha about how, um, you know, transferring to H-1B sta status helps those individuals? Definitely. So as you said, with some countries, there is a significant backlog. And so the beauty of the H-1B is that once that individual has secured an I-140 immigrant visa through their employer, they can continue to extend their H-1B beyond the six-year maximum until they're eligible for the green card to be filed. And so for some individuals, that can be several years to much, much longer. For others, it may just be a few years. But that I-140 can only be used to extend an H-1B. And so moving someone in a L-1 to an H-1B would allow them to one, have that extra year, and two, then on top of that, if they have an approved I-140, to continue extending it until their priority date becomes current. Mm. Yeah, it's, I find that, you know, it becomes absolutely critical for some of those folks to have that approved I-140 so they can continue their employment. Um, uh, otherwise, if they run out, I, I have seen in some situations where the employee has to return to their home country and maybe um, work there while the green card continues processing and then come back after it's been approved or, you know, try to work with a, a entity abroad for a year so they can come back in on an L1. Um, lots of different right. things that, <laughs> you know. Yes, play a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and are there any kind of um, tips that you'd like to leave for any um are, are corporate folks out there, um, maybe in the mobility department or HRBPs that are listening in um, when it comes to approaching the H-1B lottery season? I think it's very useful to reach out to your corporate counsel as soon as possible with job descriptions, uh, you know, wages, any information you can provide for an assessment purposes um, and provide a list of individuals who are in F1 and, as I said, other NIV statuses that could benefit from an H-1B. Um, it makes the most sense to get them into the lottery sooner rather than later, just because, as we said, the, the approval rating is about at 35%. So the more chances they get at the lottery, the better options they have long-term. So the sooner you can get an assessment done and confirm that they are eligible, then for everyone's sake, that I bring some peace of mind. Yes. Thank you so much, Patty. I, I think uh, anyone listening will, will definitely keep that in mind. Um, so I think we're, we've learned a lot this session and we thank you so much for joining us and really giving us the inside scoop on the H-1B lottery process. My pleasure, Diana. Uh -huh.